We're going to continue in First uh, Corinthians. Uh, we're all aware that we've been kind of slowly working our way through chapter 12, where Paul corrects the Corinthians' carnal views of Christian service and more particularly their misunderstandings and faulty views concerning spiritual gifts and their understanding of the body of Christ. They had no concept of diversity within the body of Christ and didn't understand that, you know, every member of the body is, is gifted differently from the next and they're to use their gifts um, just as they are and that's how God meets the needs of his church and these Corinthians just did not understand any of this. They, rather than understanding that and celebrating and embracing the gifts they had been given, they were all pursuing uniformity every member having the exact same spiritual gifts, especially the more showy gifts like tongues. Right now, we've been in the middle of a four-point sermon, and so far we have tackled points one, two, and a portion of point three. And this morning, we will deal with the rest of point three, hammer away on point four, and then finally, close out chapter 12. I was waiting for the angels to rejoice. It's been going forever. Um, we have been in this chapter for a while, so we'll be wrapping it up and then we'll move into 13. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our focus today will be on 24b through 31. That's the rest of the text. Let's pray once more. <laughs> is that Caden? He wants to pray. You hear that? Hey, buddy. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning, and uh, thank you for baby noises. Um, reminds me of my babies that are big babies, and uh, we're thankful for babies, and uh, we're thankful for this opportunity yet once again to come together to worship you corporately together as a body, and that's an exciting, enjoyable thing that we get to do each week. And there's some sacrifices that go into that. People come down here to serve you, and they use their spiritual gifts and their physical gifts and things to, to help put this thing together every Sunday morning. And we're thankful for everyone at this church that serves, whether they be elders or on the facilities team or in hospitality or in nursery and kids camp. It's just a a wonderful thing that you've put together here. And we thank you for your people. And we thank you for your word, which helps to clarify some of the things that, I just per that I'm thankful for in terms of service and gifts and spiritual gifts and these things. And we're thankful for the text that helps us understand these things. And we pray that you would, by your mercy and mercy alone, and by your grace and grace alone, that you would apply these truths to our hearts today. And through the spirit, we would be able to comprehend, understand, apply, obey, bring you glory. That's what our aim is. And so help to help us this morning to understand the, the last section in this chapter here, this wonderful chapter, and help us to apply it. And we want to give you all the glory for all that you're doing here today and beyond. And we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can obviously pick up where we left off and we'll go back to point three and that point is dysfunction in the body of Christ, something that Paul has been illustrating in the text. And we're just continuing that point. And now we move to 24B to 26. And we'll start at 24B. Paul says this next, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Stop there. Back in verse 11, we learned that God has sovereignly apportioned spiritual gifts to every member in the body of Christ. In verse 18, we learned that God has sovereignly arranged every member in the body of Christ, placing each one where he wants them to be. In verses 22 to 24a, we learn that there are spiritually gifted members in the body of Christ who are similar or like internal organs, like the torso and even like internal organs and also the exterior organs in a sense like the torso and your back and, and then again the reproductive parts of the human body. These are all illustrations that he's been making. 
And the point in the previous text that he was making about reproductive organs or things that are actually hidden in the body is that they tend to, uh, they, they, they rarely tend to receive any kind of honor for their indispensable service. And that's how it is with some servants in the church. They're not out front like your hands or your feet or body parts that you can see, they're hidden. The organs are hidden and other things are hidden and they, they don't get the accolades or the praise or the focus that the exterior things get. There's people in the church that serve in that way, behind the veil, behind the scenes, and they, they're just not likely to be recognized or to be honored. They serve in the shadows off stage. This is something that Paul has been illustrating. And Paul says they're their duties, just as our internal organs or reproductive organs and all that, they're no less indispensable than the things that are on the outside that you can see. Now in verse 24b, Paul is saying that God has composed the human body in a way that is meant to bring greater honor to the members that are actually hidden. Now again, he's referring to the human body, and when you think about his point in terms of a human body... Paul is saying God gives greater honor to those members that are hidden. Think in terms of your hidden members in your human body that are on the inside. How much honor would your heart demand or require or not require but be worthy of? How do you live without a heart? And we don't tend to think of the heart because it's not on the outside. Or maybe your liver or your kidneys. And Dave can testify to that. He's had kidney transplants. So... What Paul is saying now through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that you have indispensable parts in the body of Christ that aren't seen, but God intends to give them greater honor, partially because of their indispensable service, but also because they're hidden. God has always been for the little man, the little, man, the little guy. It's just the way he is, right? And, and that, that's the thought here. That's, that's what he's saying in 24b. Uh, if we were to think in terms of greater or lesser degrees of honor, which body part should receive greater honor, the liver or the hand? You know, you can lop these things off. I mean, you could nub your way around town while you're driving. I mean, you, you can live without a hand, but you cannot live without a liver. This is what Paul is illustrating. Hidden parts... God gives them greater honor. You know, the liver has, in a sense, a greater function than the hand. The hand is seen, but the liver isn't. But the liver has a greater function. Hands don't keep you alive. You might think, well, sure, they lift the fork that feeds me. You can get a tube right down your throat. There's ways to live without these flashy, showy, you know, guys are all into building their muscles and everything. I mean, you can tell I've been at it really hard. Look at that. Man, that's a serious SpongeBob bicep. Uh, you know, I mean, they're into building all this and making it attractive. And God says, fine, these are important organs or members, but they're not as vital as what cannot be seen. Because these, if you had buffed arms, they don't mean anything without a functional heart. Same rule applies in the church. You have indispensable members that are serving in the shadows that don't tend to get recognized, that are not often celebrated. And we do all of that, you know, in a way that glorifies God. We don't want to make too much of people. Uh, but this is his point. You have, you know, you, you can't live without your liver but you can live without hands. Paul uses this, you know, I mean, he's really just continuing to use this metaphor, but he uses it to exhort the Corinthians to do what? To bestow greater honor upon the members of the church who are like the liver or some other vital organ that performs its indispensable tasks, job, whatever it is that it's supposed to do, they do it behind the scenes. And Paul is saying, you need to bestow honor on them as well. Not just the ones who come up and preach, not just the ones who ramble off in tongues, not just the ones who perform healings or perform miracles. Don't forget about people that aren't up front. That's what he's saying. Don't forget about those who serve out of view. 
He's saying for the Corinthians to remember those members of the body of Christ because it's just less likely that they will be focused on or even thanked. He's saying give those hidden servants greater honor because they rarely, if ever, receive it because of the way they serve. Now this exhortation through the illustration or metaphor, it is a contrast to what many of the Corinthians were actually doing. In verse 21, we learn that they were essentially telling these talented, indispensable servants that what you're doing really isn't all that important. We really don't need you. We really don't need you at the church or your service because you're not doing what we are doing up front. This is what the Corinthians were doing. Can you imagine? You're, you're not as important as that guy who speaks in tongues and translates languages for us. You're not as important as uh, the one who gets up and preaches the word and prophesies in the sense that he unpacks the word so we can understand it and apply it. You, you, you know, you're just not... We love you, but, you know, you're just not with the rest of us. It's very clicky in this place. And he's, he's straight up telling them, man, you've, you've left aside. And, and you know what? There's only in every church, and I would say this is probably true of history, church history, in every church, throughout all of church history, it's always been a small minority of people that, preach and prophesy or speak, and while the vast majority of servants in the church are doing everything else. And they're not the ones that are focused on it all. Oh, that's just never made any sense to me. Just a bizarre thing that's happening here. And so this exhortation is, is really a, a rebuke in a way. You've got members that are like internal organs and things that perform tasks that outweigh and are more valuable than what some of you clowns are doing and yet you, you tell them that you don't need them and that their work isn't worthy of praise or you, you don't want to obey the Bible where it says to give praise where praise is due. You want to dismiss those people because they're not out front. And, and we, we say to ourselves, well, this sounds very extreme. I just really can't imagine this happening in churches today. It happens every weekend in churches today. I saw it where I came from. People that worked in, in served in particular uh, positions, in particular ministries at my old church, they would often say of those who served in other positions, well, at this church you have the haves, and you have the have-nots. That was a sentiment and feeling that, that some had because some seemed to be in an exalted club where they were getting all the accolades and all the positive emails and all the focus. Am I, am I trying to thrash my old church? Of course not. I'm telling you, I'm illustrating that it was there. It's everywhere. And it's just because in our Adamic nature and fallen nature, we, we tend to just glom onto and focus on that which is spotlighted, and we don't pay attention to that which isn't. You know, there's rock star pastors in churches, not because they're so incredibly talented, but because of the mentality of the people of those churches. They exalt people one over the other. They're clicky. We're clicky. So we, we, we look at these extreme examples in, in the church at Corinth and we say, oh my goodness, I can't imagine anyone being like that. Well, I think there have been times in the past where we have probably been like that a little bit, but we certainly see it in churches today. I saw it at my old church and it's, it's not something that people are intending to do. It is a natural progression, I should say regression of human nature. This is what we do. We click up. We focus on that which we like and appreciate. We pour into and invest into what affirms us or what we like. And in the church, it, it's just not supposed to be that way. So God's antidote in this text to that is bestow greater honor on those who never get it. 
It's a wake-up call, isn't it? I'll tell you, verse 24b must have been shocking to the carnal imbeciles in this Corinthian church who were pushing such demonic nonsense. Paul just declared that God gives hidden servants greater honor. This is what Paul is telling this church. This isn't like an encouragement to pay attention to Sammy who serves in the nursery. This is that God honors Sammy more than you. And you think Sammy's not worth the, the two cents. This is, this, is, this is heavy. And what it ultimately means is that people who have been appointed to leadership, to maybe more highly visible positions in the body of Christ, because this, this happens, you know, you, you have elders and others, and, it's, it, and that's, that's proper governance, so it's going to happen, it's supposed to happen, but what it means for those of us who have been appointed to higher visibility positions and all that, what the Word of God is saying to us is that we had better follow God's example and start giving honor where honor is due, especially to the hidden servants that, as Paul says, lacked it. You ever been part of a church where the elders were this ever-elusive, almost phantom-like group that floated around? You didn't even know who they were, but when you saw one, you were like, I better shield my eyes, it's too bright. <laughs> what is that? Is the Apostle Paul not the ultimate elder? Spending every day in the Ephesian church with the Ephesian people who were messy, by the way, for three years? There was nothing elusive or effervescent about Paul. He was in the trenches with the soldiers. So I don't know where, where the church deviated from this and started exalting this elite class. And, and there was an elite class in the Corinthian church, and it certainly wasn't godly elders. It was the tongue speakers and the, the, pro the prophets and the healers and the miracle workers and all those who did things that were very showy and got a lot of attention. Meanwhile, everyone else was like Charlie Brown. They got a rock. <laughs> you know the, you know, I got a rock. This is the exhortation in 24b. He's comprised and assigned. God has assigned the members to be where they're at and to have the specific gifts and for there to be equal honor given among everyone. That way, no one's left behind. No one's felt dishonored. Everyone is, is to be loved and cared for and recognized no matter what their service is like. And leaders better figure this out quickly. Because they're the ones that set the example. That's what he's saying. Give to those who don't receive it. Those who lacked it, give honor to them. Because God bestows greater honor on those who serve behind the shadows. The Corinthians thought all the honor goes to the one in the pulpit. Paul's saying, wrong. Verse 25 Listen to this, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul is really, in the simplest terms, just describing the flat-out purpose for why we would bestow honor on, on anyone, but in particular on those who lack it. If every gifted member of the body of Christ is honored for their service... It's going to help to prevent divisions. That's what he's saying here. And what do we know about the Corinthian church already? Probably one of the most divided bodies, at least in the first century. I mean, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I mean, they, were, they, they divided over everything. You had the... Uh, you had the married types who were sexually active. You had the celibate types that weren't. Those were their own clubs. Come to the celibacy club Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. Well, that sounds like fun. I don't know what's worse, going to the married sexual class or going to the celibate class. They both sound like a disaster. I mean, they had a, a click for everything. 
they had so many divisions. And Paul's saying, if you just give honor unilaterally like you're supposed to, because everyone's an image bearer, everyone's a Christian here, everyone's a believer, everyone's a gifted servant. If you just pay attention to everyone like you're supposed to do, and you give praise when praises do, and you don't leave people out, you're going to be less likely to have so much division. Because when you don't do that, you end up with some forms of division. You end up having people in the body that say things like, there's the haves and the have-nots. So if you give it, it's going to prevent divisions, hopefully. Why do divisions arise? Well, there's a, a zillion reasons why they arise, but in the context here, it would be because of disparities. Varying levels of treatment that are seen as unfair, right? What is the biblical term for that kind of behavior? It's called favoritism. It's real simple. If members of a church honor some but not others, it will be perceived as favoritism, which can lead to dissatisfaction, disenfranchisement, and ultimately divisions. This is what happens. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Elders who direct the affairs of the church, uh, well, they're actually worthy of double honor, especially those who, uh, whose work is preaching and teaching. So let, let's, I'm trying to make a point here. First of all, if you honor some and not others, it leads to disenfranchisement and all that. Now I'm drawing a contrast. You slide over to, to 1 Timothy 5.17, and it says that you should give double honor to elders because of the function and service they perform, especially those who preach. So you could say, wait a minute, the word encourages us, sure, to give honor unilaterally, but most certainly to give more honor to some. Now what happens is, the elder is worth double honor, but sometimes the elders or the preachers are the only ones who get any honor at all. They get more than double. They get all of it at the expense of others. Okay, so in other words, good elders are entitled to double honor, but it should never come at the expense of those who serve in non-eldership roles. The, the honor that an elder is paid by some is in addition to the honor that is paid to all. It's just an extra measure of honor. In other words, they might be worthy of double honor, but everyone is still worthy and entitled to some level of honor and recognition. Now, I, I bring up this point because... First of all, you could, like I just said, argue that, well, we're supposed to give double honor to some, so we're not supposed to honor everyone unilaterally. Yes, you are. You're just supposed to give a little measure more to the, to the elders. But I say this because of this phenomenon. In some denominational circles, it's the pastors and primarily the main pastor who preaches all the time who gets 99.9% .9 of the honor in a church. They just, they get it all. Jesus didn't pay it all. The pastors get it all. They're the focus in the church. I remember visiting a church here in town years ago. And uh, when I first entered the building, um, I was struck by really large portraits of the pastor everywhere. You know, they were, they were like strategically placed throughout like the foyer and all that. And, and they were just these big, and some of them were painted. You know, so somebody commissioned an artist to, you know, paint this guy. You know, it's like, it's a Van Gogh, right? You know? And I just thought, first of all, if that were to happen to me, I'd have to lose weight. Probably grow this longer so I can hide the, you know, the gobbler. Uh, but, okay, are, were they attempting to pay the pastor double honor? I think if you were to say, hey, why are there so many pictures of this guy throughout the building? In fact, you got more pictures of him than you do Jesus. And every time I see a picture of Jesus, it's Sven the downhill skier from Sweden. You know, blue-eyed Jesus, you know, Caucasian Jesus. Anglo-Jesus, Anglo-Saxon Jesus, German Jesus, Speckensee Deutsch. He was Jewish. 
There was nothing about his appearance that was attractive. But you've got these pictures of this guy all over the place. And, and I'm sitting here just wondering why. Trying not to judge, but then trying to judge at the same time. You've you got pictures of this guy everywhere. I think his supporters would say, this is how we pay him double honor. And then not long after that, I found out that he lives in a $3 million home in Ripon. Okay, that's a hundred time honor. And the church pays for all of it. And for his Mercedes, several of them. He's like Solomon. He's got Mercedes cities instead of chariot cities. And all his clothing. And people in the church serve at his home and bring them drinks and if they don't like the drink they turn it away and and then the salary of almost a million dollars a year and it just you know this is this is what some churches do for their pastors is this what Paul envisioned in 1st Timothy 517 is that double honor no mm -mm. in fact in the text and in the context, it has nothing to do with anything monetary at all. It doesn't mean pay him an exorbitant amount of money or pay for his clothes or put pictures of him up all over the place like the Ayatollah. <laughs> it's not what Paul meant when he wrote, penned that letter to Timothy. Double honor means to give good elders respect and to obey their teachings from Scripture and to pay them adequately because the worker is worth his wage. Do not muzzle the ox. To pay him adequately so his needs are met, don't pay him exorbitantly. That's the meaning of paying the, 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 the elder, especially that one who preaches. You pay him a decent wage so he can focus on the ministry of the word. It doesn't have anything to do with exorbitance or going crazy or having pictures everywhere. So we are to pay double honor to good elders, but we are to pay honor to all who faithfully serve, whether they perform their duties out front or behind the scenes. That's Paul's point. According to verse 25a, this is one way the body of Christ can avoid divisions, right? That's the point. If, are you going to have divisions if one person is singled out and worshipped? That's what's happening down the street. That guy's worshipped. If I'm part of that church, you're going to have divisions because I'm going to be going around saying, you aren't worshipping Christ, you're worshipping him. And that's going to cause trouble. And Paul says at the end of verse 25, by giving honor unilaterally, that's not just how you prevent, potentially prevent uh, disunity and divisions and all that, but it's how the church shows care for one another. To, to give honor to all, especially those who serve in the shadows, is how you show care. That's a type of care. Praise when it's due, when somebody's worthy of it, is a type of care. Did you know that? That's an encouragement to them. And sometimes you've got people that are gutting it out, maybe in the nursery or some other area of ministry that can be difficult at times because you're trying to manage kittens, children, and, and you come up to that person after service or whatever and you put your arm around them and say, I'm so thankful for what you do. And, and that person has had a hard morning a difficult morning at home with their own children or whatever, or driving over here because Modestans are terrible on the road, <laughs> or they've had difficulty in the class because one kid that morning was offering sacrifices to Molech in the corner, Zandalebanda, blowing their sandwich up. And, and then you come along after they've had a hard morning and say, you know what, we love you and we're so thankful for what you do. Do you have any idea what kind of wind that blows into their sails? That is... Not just praise. That is care. You've just cared for that person. And that is a person that is less likely to get care from those who are out in the front, to get praise from those who are up front. That's what Paul is saying to do. 
Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul has just literally completely demolished the idea of uniformity when it comes to spiritual gifts and service. We're all individual members. We've all been given different distinct gifts. We've all been given various ministries. He's already annihilated that throughout the whole chapter up to this point. We know that the Spirit does not manifest the exact same gift in every member of the body of Christ. That is not to say that, that you know, certain members have the same type of gift. They do. Some have the gift of prophecy to be able to proclaim the word in a way that's applicable and relevant and all that. But the way that the gift is manifested and is shown and is exercised in each individual that possesses the same gift is vastly different from the next one. So you might have a, a body, a small expression of the body of Christ where God has given the same spiritual gift to several people, but the way that it's exercised and practiced and put into use looks differently from the next gal or guy. But the point is that Paul has just been, he's just eviscerated this whole idea and just gutted it that we have all this uniformity. The Spirit is, is, does it differently. He as it says, manifests a variety of gifts since the body of Christ has a variety of needs. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. If everyone has the exact same spiritual gifts and, and all practice them in a like manner, you know, you're meeting this, that specific spiritual need in the church, but there's other needs that go unmet because the gifts aren't there to meet them. So you have to have this diversity we've been talking about. That's what Paul's been saying. And with the diversity and everybody using their special, unique, God-given gifts, that's, with them all doing it together in unison, serving together, that's how you achieve the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So when it comes to spiritual gifts and service, the Spirit does not aim for uniformity. He aims for diversity. This has been Paul's point throughout almost the entire chapter. But here in verse 26, Paul does point to two types of uniformity that should occur in the body of Christ in individual churches. He has been denouncing and destroying the idea of uniformity, but now he's saying there are a couple of types of uniformity that should occur. The first type of uniformity is the result of suffering. If one member of the human body or of a, of a human body suffers, it causes the whole human body to suffer. Amen? Is that not what I've been experiencing for over a month now with broken ribs? You know, broken ribs pretty much almost entirely incapacitate your entire body. So because of two little, you know, baby backs... <laughs> In my back, snap, snap, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I, there's not much I can do here. I was hurting at a wedding last night, not because of my ribs, but because of atrophy. Sitting around for a month doing nothing and then using muscles again, and the muscles are going, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to be in your chair. You can't pick that up. It's like 10 pounds. When one member of your human body suffers, it can cause suffering throughout. Two fractured ribs are, have basically caused pain throughout my entire body as the rest of my body tries to compensate and take up the slack. And, you know, plus I would say my sleeping got totally wrecked. So the two broken ribs have just, it's not just a back, you know, it's not just a rib problem, it's everywhere. That is uniformity of suffering. One member causing the entire body to suffer. That's uniformity of suffering. Uh, Chrysostom put it like this. When a thorn enters the heel, the whole body feels it. <laughs> I would say in modern context, when a, when a Lego enters the heel, the whole body feels it. Amen? You ever stepped on one of those in the middle of the night? When I was a kid, we played with jacks. Yeah, you stepped on one of those, you had three kids, the next morning you had two, because you killed the one that left them out. That was like stepping on a, a, a goat head. You know what I'm talking about, the little goat heads that come off the plants that pop all our tires when we're riding. I wish that would have happened a month ago, then I couldn't have broke my ribs. When a thorn enters the heel, the whole body feels it and is concerned. 
The back bends, the belly and thighs contract themselves, the hands come forward and draw out the thorn, the head stoops, and the eyes regard the affected member with intense glaze, right? Ah! Chrysostom's point's right on the money. It is the same in the body of Christ. If one, same in your human body, but it's the same in the body of Christ. If one member of the, of the body of Christ suffers, the other members will suffer too. Why is that? Because we love each other. And when one hurts, we hurt. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one is pained, we are all pained. When one goes down, we all go down in a sense. Why? Because we feel their pain. We empathize and feel their pain. And I would say the closer you get to people, the more you'll feel it. And the reason why you don't have a lot of uniformed suffering in churches is because nobody in these churches knows each other. They don't have anything to do with each other. So when one dies, it's like, eh, one gets hurt or cancer or whatever, eh. you know? But we are, I think we're as close to a family as you can get. Jen finds out she's not going to be able to drive anymore. That pained me immensely. Because I can take what she's going through and apply it to myself and empathize and understand what it would be like for me to not be able to drive. And they say it's just a privilege, but it sure is a privilege that grants such a sense of freedom at times. And when that's taken away and you've been doing it your whole life, that's hard. And I don't, I don't want to over-amplify amplify Jen's misery. I'm, she's not complaining, like, you know, this is terrible. Phil, by the way. Dave's response is, we'll figure it out. You know, it's like, typical guy. You know, that's a lot of empathy, strong, you know. <laughs> empathy is strong with this one, right? You know? Yeah, we'll figure it out. That's a classic guy answer. Brian's smiling because he knows it's true. Does he do it all the time, Shelly? Yes, he does. That's why he doesn't have any hair. <laughs> we, we're, we're close and we love each other. And when one is hurt, we are hurt. This is what Paul is saying. When one member in the body of Christ suffers, it causes a uniformed, unilateral suffering among many. If not, if it's a small church like ours, it can, it can be devastating to the whole church. Same in the body of Christ. That's his whole point. When one goes down, we all sort of go down. And the second type of uniformity Paul's talking about here is the result of honor. First is suffering, second is honor. If one member of the human body is honored, thinking of the physical body, it causes the whole human body to be honored. Right? If we perform a, maybe something extraordinary like a life-saving task with our hands, right? maybe we're put in a situation where we perform CPR or do something maybe to save a life, it's not our hands that are brought forward for recognition. Please put your hands on the podium. It's the whole person that's brought forward and recognized and honored. And those who are associated with that person, wow, do you see what happened? Do you see what he did? That's my brother. Or that's my brother. <laughs> he and I were reading in Ephesians last week. Right? You, you, see, you, see, you see what Paul's saying here? So if we perform a life-saving task, it's not just these members that, that perform the task that's recognized. It's, it's not just our hands. It's the whole person. My hands have caused my whole person to be honored. That is the idea of uniformity in honor or of honor. Chrysostom again says, when the head is crowned, the whole man feels honored. The mouth expresses and the eyes look, gladness and all this stuff he explains. It is the same in the body of Christ. If one member is honored, the other members will rejoice. We love each other, and when one is honored, we, we all feel his or her joy, and, and then we all rejoice together with that person. When one is lifted up, we are all lifted up in a sense, are we not? Why? Because we're all happy for them. Paul's point was not to 
push the idea of uniformed suffering and or honor or rejoicing. That's not what he's aiming at here. This is the illustration he's using, but that's not what he was aiming at. What he's actually doing is illustrating the marks of a loving church. Uniformed suffering and uniformed rejoicing are the marks of a loving church. Love compels us to suffer with our brothers and sisters when they suffer. If someone in our body, this little body, is suffering and we're suffering with them, that shows love. That is an expression of love. That is the fruit of love. And equally, love compels us to rejoice when those people are not suffering, but they're honored. Paul's not talking about, you know, when one goes down, everyone goes down. He's using that as an illustration just to show what a loving church is like. Because in an unloving church, nobody cares if somebody's suffering. Nobody cares and rejoices if somebody is honored. But in a loving church, if someone suffers, those who have love suffer with them. And when those are honored... When people are honored, those who have love rejoice with them. They don't say, oh, he, he didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve that. that, that, that that's just ridiculous. That, that's envy. That's jealousy. To cut, someone, to cut someone down when they're being honored. A loving church suffers with others. And a loving church rejoices with those who are being honored. That's what Paul is saying. And what do you have in Corinth? None of that, so you don't have a loving church. You don't have a loving church. You have a divided church that's competitive and showy and wants the notoriety and the acclaim and the support and the approval of the culture. It's a carnal, worldly church. There's, there's, there's barely, if any, love here. What you have is a prideful church, right? In a prideful church, its members are not going to be guided, motivated, or moved by love. They will be driven by self-interest, self-fulfillment, and self-exaltation. They will not give a rip about anyone else, especially those who serve in the shadows. They mean nothing to them. They will not, in a prideful church, the members of that church, they will not see the people around them as valued members worthy of honor. They will see them as commodities to be used for their selfish pursuits, or they will see them as liabilities that are just going to get in their way of whatever it is they want. That was Corinth. That is the dysfunction in that body, in the body of Christ, there and today. Now we can move to four, finally. Direction for the body of Christ. We see this in 27 through 31. We start at 27. Listen to what Paul says. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What, what is Paul doing now in verse 27? He's applying everything he has said in verses 1 to 26. Here is the application. Here's what you are to do. What had been said of the body, of its unity, of the diversity of its members and gifts, of their mutual dependence or interdependence, of the greater importance of the weaker than the stronger members, of the community of mutual suffering and rejoicing is all true in the application to the church or of the church, is what he's saying. And you need to understand that Paul has, has not been commanding the church through this whole chapter. He's not been commanding the church to be a certain way. Well, here's some guidelines for Christian living. Here's some guidelines for how you ought to be and you ought to give honor over here and you ought to do this. This is, these are, this is not a, a, a set of commands. These are not imperatives. What has he been doing? He has been describing how the church is, not how it should be, how it is. Organically. 
not guidelines here. He, is just, he has been illustrating what the body of Christ is as a divine, holy creation. Charles Hodge said, Paul is not speaking of what ought to be, but of what is. This isn't a blueprint for proper Christian ministry and service and the view of gifts. This, he is describing absolutely the DNA of the church. And we are the body of Christ. We are diverse, we are gifted, we are interdependent, we need each other. We are in the body of Christ, some members are weaker and some members are stronger. This is a fact. We mutually suffer, we mutually rejoice. These aren't things that we aim for, this is who we are as a people. This might be the hardest part of this whole text. Because we like instructions and bullet points and what are the imperatives? What am I supposed to do? Well, I would say don't jettison the idea of what you're supposed to do here. But really what he's describing is an organic, real Christian and an organic, real church. A church does these things. And of course, when he says this in verse 27, the Corinthians must have just turned and packed up. We don't even come close to this. We can't even call ourselves a church. We're more like the Acropolis. We're more like the world. Paul has been describing our substance and qualities, our DNA as the people of God. He has been describing what the church is and how it functions was not calling for Christians to act a certain way. He was reminding Christians of what they already are and of what they should already be doing. And the body of Christ will do what Paul listed above, naturally and organically. Why? Because that is exactly what God designed it to do. So if you have people that aren't doing it, maybe they're not part of the body of Christ. We're afraid to say things like that today because we don't want to offend anyone. I mean, at some point, you're just going to have to look at the tree and say, that's supposed to be an apple tree. There's nothing on it. It's never bore a single apple. I would say, though, there's a mercy to the text. There always is in God's word. On occasion... Some members of the body of Christ do need to be reminded of their true identity and true function as members of the body of Christ. We have the world, the devil, and the flesh as adversaries, Ephesians 2, 2 to 3. And what do they do? They create potent distractions, don't they? And I think that you see that in Corinth, too. It's not just, you know, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is a legitimate church that Paul, in love, is writing to. We can't dismiss this as some kind of pagan anomaly. It is a bona fide church. It has real members of the body of Christ. Some were doing what they're supposed to do because they, they couldn't help themselves. And some had gotten distracted and weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And then some were just faking it. Those are the tares. Those are the goats. Verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Paul again reminds the Corinthians of God's sovereignty and perfect provision in equipping his church. In verse 28a, he lists three offices quickly. First, God appointed in the church apostles. The basic meaning of apostle is, well, the Greek words apostolos or apostolos, and it just simply means one who's been sent on a mission. In its primary, most technical sense, uh, apostle is used in the New Testament only of the 12, including Matthias, who replaced Judas Acts 126, and of course of Paul, who was uniquely set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles, Galatians 1, 15 to 17. Basically, it's, it's a... It's a title that can mean in a generic sense sent by Christ but more specifically in the New Testament it refers to the 12 and the add-ons later just a handful 
the apostles had three basic responsibilities. A, to lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. B, to receive and declare the revelation of God's word, Acts 11.28, uh, Acts 21.10-11, and Ephesians 3.5. And thirdly, or C, to give confirmation of that word through signs, wonders, and mighty works, 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. And we have talked about this. Those gifts have ceased and those positions have ceased. There are no apostles. I don't care who in Alabama or wherever else they might be calling themselves an apostle. They're not an apostle. It's gone. Second, God has appointed prophets. This is a reference to an office or particular leadership in the, in, in the church. It is not a reference to a spiritual gift. The prophets sometimes spoke revelation from God, Acts 11, 21 to 28. And sometimes they simply expounded revelation that had already been given, Acts 13, 1. Like the apostles, the office of this type of prophet, it also ceased at the completion of the New Testament. Just as the Old Testament prophets disappeared when the Old Testament was completed some 400 years before Christ. So the first two offices that he lists they were in effect and still going when he wrote this, but they ceased later on. Thirdly, God appointed teachers. These special individuals had not only the spiritual gift of teaching, but they were actually called by God to teach. They focused on studying and interpreting the word of God to the church. Apollos is a great example of a, an appointed teacher. He was competent in the scriptures, Acts 18.24. That particular office in the church is ongoing, still in effect. Then in verse 28, B, he lists five spiritual gifts, right? First he does some offices, now he does spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And I'm not going to go back into most of them because we've already discussed miracles, healings, and tongues. They were all sign gifts given primarily to the apostles. Therefore, they ceased with the apostles. They're gone. But Paul does list a couple more here. God also appointed helping, which refers to the spiritual gift of helps. It's only mentioned here in this text, nowhere else. It's alluded to in a few places, but this is where it's mentioned as a spiritual gift. Those who have this particular spiritual gift, they enjoy rendering aid and assistance to others, and they always do it with compassion and grace. They are those brothers and sisters in the church that just love to lend a helping hand. They find out there's a need. They're the first one there with their truck, you know? You really know who has this spiritual gift when, forget about Jared, because he has a moving company, but you really discover who has this one when you tell the church you're moving and who shows up, right? Right? That one sap pulls up. No, I'm just kidding, right? Pulls up, like, I'm here to help, you know? Dude, you have a Yugo. I, I don't know where we're going to put my bed, you know? Well, I could put the lampshade in there, you know what I mean? They just want to help. A Yugo, you know? Let me get your car first. They're the ones that want to lend a helping hand, and they always do it with compassion and grace. They're ready, ready and willing to go. And this gift, too, is ongoing. And lastly, God appointed administration, which is also known as the gift of leadership, Romans 12.8. The person who has this particular gift is very organized and, and very good at managing ministries and, and servants that serve in those ministries. Uh, and like with helps or helping, administration is an ongoing gift. And there's a few people in this church that, that really have a profound <laughs> unction of this gift. So much so that you're like, back off! <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> and they have it. And, and, and imagine what it would be like if it wasn't present here. Right? So it's such a profound, important gift to have. Now, Paul's point was not to provide his readers with yet another church office spiritual gift list, because that's what these texts get reduced down to. Hey, you want to find out where the spiritual gift lists are? Go over there and look in 1 Corinthians 12. That's all it's ever seen as, and that is not his point at all. His point is to illustrate the sovereignty of God over all these appointments. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12.18, 12.24, 12.28. The sovereignty of God over these appointments and gifts is a major theme in chapter 12. He also does it to illustrate the diversity that the body of Christ has. 
right? 1 Corinthians 12, 4. And also, just to illustrate something he said back in verse 5, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 5. He said, there is a variety of ministries. So he does use the text to promote diversity. You've got apostles and all these different offices and you've got these different gifts and he's showing the sovereignty of God over them and the diversity of them, which is diversity is another thing that escaped these people. Verses 29 to 30, listen to this. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? It's a series of rhetorical questions that Paul asks. Really, there's, I think, yeah, it's a whole series of them here. And the answer to all of them would be clearly no. Not all are apostles, not all are this, not all are that. All the Corinthians had to do to answer these rhetorical questions is open their eyes and look around and they would see all this diversity. Well, we have an apostle that comes in once in a while. We have a couple of prophets and uh, they do their job, and we've certainly got three or four teachers in the church, and we've got, man, most of the body here seems to have the gift of helps. Everyone's trying to be helpful, and we do have a couple of people that, that are gifted with administration and these sorts. All they'd have to do is look around, and they'd see it. And they, they would do that, and they would say, okay, these positions are all wrong. We all need to be doing this. So when he asked these questions, the obvious answer to them would have been no. Not all are, prof uh, not all are apostles. There's, there's only like 14 total, really 12, 13 maybe tops with the replacement. They knew the answer to this. They would know that God does not intend for every member in the body of Christ to have the exact same office and the exact same spiritual gifts functioning all exactly the same but rather that God distributes the offices and the gifts according to his sovereign purpose. As he said back in verse 11, just as God wills. That's the conclusion that they had to arrive at. It is the responsibility of us members to accept the gifts and ministries we've been given with gratitude and to use them for the common good of the body and ultimately for the glory of God. That's also what he's inferring or implying here. You're not all the same. Diversity is supposed to be there. Embrace who you are and what you've been giving and use it. Quit trying to get rid of it or change it out for something else. We'd, God is a tap, tap, no take back guy. He doesn't give you a gift and then revoke it and then give you, oh, you don't like that one? Here, try this one. He's not a box of chocolates. Ooh, that was nasty. That had nuts in it. Give me another one. Ooh, that's a Bordeaux. Mm, I like that. Mm, that's good. It's not the way he functions. Verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Wow. This is an imperative. This is a command. And it was intended to halt the Corinthians' reckless pursuit, ultimately, of the gift of tongues. He is saying, stop going after that gift. Every, everybody wants this showy gift. In the next section, in the next chapter or chapter 14, Paul says, you know, I do wish that all of you spoke in tongues. And I, I think he's being sarcastic or facetious. But here he's ultimately telling them, stop focusing on that one particular gift. You're all obsessed with it. Everybody wanted the showy gift. Paul is saying that if you earnestly desire a particular spiritual gift, may it be the higher gifts, those that are above others. Now, he has been talking about diversity, but he's been talking about unilateral praise and honor. And so now you might be thinking, how could one gift be above another? Is it true? He says eagerly desire the higher gifts. Wait a minute, if somebody has a higher gift, they might be seen as having a higher gift and people might put pictures of him all over their church and put him in a $3 million house in Ripon. That's probably just mean at this point, but the shoe fits. According to Paul, what would make one gift higher than the other? 
It would be the gift's impact on the body of Christ. The level of common good it can produce. And just so you know, God gives a diversity of gifts to a diversity of members, but there are some gifts that have a unique, special impact on the body of Christ beyond what other gifts, the impact they make. Okay? In this church, they were able to recognize that, but they gave all the honor to those who had the higher gifts, and that was the mistake. Or they were pursuing a gift that they thought was higher, and it isn't. Okay, the presence and impact of the spiritual gift of tongues, which is what they were focused on, is actually very, very low on the church, on the first century church especially. And that is why the gift of tongues is not among the higher gifts. They made it the highest gift in the church, and Paul is saying, if you eagerly desire a gift, make it one that's actually on the list. The one that you're going after is not on the list. Somebody needs to tell my Pentecostal friends this today. It didn't make the list. Sorry, continuationists. Paul had at least two spiritual gifts in mind in verse 31, and tongues was not on the list. It wasn't one of them. The first higher gift he was referring to is prophecy, a preacher-teacher's ability to expound and apply God's word effectively. It is a higher gift because of its massive impact upon the body of Christ. Paul witnessed this in his own ministry, and he testified to the highness or to the greatness of the spiritual gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. He did this in several places. Verse 1. Earnest, remember this is chapter 14, verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Verse 39, so my brothers, earnestly desire prophecy. See, in Corinth, a major difference between tongues and prophecy was their impact. When a member of that church spoke in tongues, the only one who understood them was God because there were no human translators in the room. Since God is the creator of all languages and all people groups, he knows all languages. And when somebody in this congregation, if they in fact did this, ripped out and started speaking in a language they were not aware of, and there was no one in there who understood what they were saying, bare minimum, God understood because he knows all languages. So they were, in a sense, speaking a tongue they did not know supernaturally to God. Since the person was speaking only to God, the church as a whole received no blessing. Nothing was done for the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 2. The only benefactor in that scenario wasn't God because he knows all things. It was the tongue speaker. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 4a. When this occurred, when somebody started speaking in a tongue, the person was God. There was no interpretation, and it did not benefit the body at all. This is exactly why Paul said, if you have no translator when you're gathered, please keep silent. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. Do it at home. Okay, so that's the impact of tongues. What was the impact of tongues in this church? Goose egg! Why did God give it then? Because it may have had an impact early on when you had all those languages that need to be, needed to be discerned. I mean, it probably had an impact at some point or God had planned for it to have an impact in the future. We know in the hands of the Corinthians, it was probably hard for God to have any impact with any of his gifts because of how goofy they were. Not that anything's hard for God to do, but his people sure can be a nuisance. But in contrast, when a member prophesied, preached the word effectively. He spoke to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, consolation, and to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4b. Prophesy is higher because of its profound impact on the body of Christ. The Spirit uses the word of God and the gift of prophecy through sound teachers to renew our minds, to conform us to the image of Christ, Romans 12, 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It is also higher because it hasn't ceased. Tongues have ceased. Prophecy is higher because it hasn't ceased. It's still going. It's happening today, right here. Praise God. 
And it will continue to be operative until when? Until the return of Christ. It's superior because of its longevity. It's superior because of its impact on the body. Would we all sit here today and easily testify to how wonderful of an impact the Word of God has had on you through good preaching through all the years? It has had on me as I listen to the guys I like and as I listen to Cameron and Bruce a couple of weeks ago. I don't think that you can compare anything else to it. The faithful, careful exposition of the Word of God by the man who is anointed with the spiritual gift of prophecy is a super powerful tool in the church. And that's why it's a higher gift. And that's why the elders who do it are worth double honor, but not at the expense of others. But tongues, and today people think, oh, that's the one. And in and, and all of those circles where tongues is the focus, and that's the heightened gift, and that's the greater gift, in every one of those circles, I bet you if, if you were to do an analysis, you would find that the prophecy and preaching of the word is very low. The one that has the greater, that is in a greater status, the one that has a greater effect is minimized, while the one that has no effect is exalted. This is what was happening in Corinth. And the Corinthians were just chasing after tongues, not because of the potential good it could do. And I'll tell you what, God gave the gift, and we don't want to dishonor the gift because then we're dishonoring the giver of it. It was a good gift when it was properly practiced. It broke down language barriers where you needed that. It was a sign to unbelieving Jews. It was a wonderful, spectacular gift for a particular season. We don't want to minimize any of God's gifts. He gives them. And just being abused in this context in Corinth. But they were chasing after it. Because I think when it was done, even when it was done feliciously or fakely, it was still attractive because of the kind of attention and stuff it would bring. But they were pursuing it not because of its potential good. Especially if there were language barriers present. Because that's why, what it's used for. They were doing it because it was showy and it created a lot of attention. According to verse 31, it is not wrong for a believer to earnestly desire a particular spiritual gift from God as long as his or her motives are pure and they understand the purpose, which is the common good. But if his or her motives are self-seeking, all sorts of trouble will follow just like we see at Corinth. Paul was determined to expose their vanity he was determined to, through the aid of the Holy Spirit and through sound teaching and exposition of God's word and even God's word being revealed directly to them, he was determined to change their direction. He wants them to, the, the Corinthians, to put an end to their carnal self-seeking pursuits. He wants them to start practicing their spiritual gifts. Believe me when I say this, brothers and sisters, this church was full of spiritual gifts more so than many churches, and he wants them to start utilizing them to see them properly and to use them properly. And yet, with all of that being said, in the second half of 31, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. There's something that goes beyond your focus and what I've said thus far. There's something that's even higher then all of this is what he says. And we'll have to wait till next week to begin to look at it.